0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Risby, good evening and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, his story will touch you even though he can't, it's Ed Davis, how the devil are you sir?
1: Uh, I'm very good, thank you. I'm I'm pretty sure I know that one. I believe that one is Edward Scissorhands.
0: Ah, oh, that is correct, Ed. You are now one for four.
1: Yep. <laughs> that uh, it did just remind me, I think I've said this before, but on the making of document documentary for Twelve Monkeys, there is a, a scene in which Terry Gilliam is being presented with a bunch of possible taglines for the film and the one that he is one of the ones he's presented with is Our Future is in the hands of a man who has none. And he just devolves into being just incredulously saying, "But that makes it sound like he doesn't have any hands."
0: <laughs> so, so
1: that tag that tagline was uh, was what that reminded me of.
0: Yeah, imagine if Bruce Willis's character had no hands in that film. That would just be really stupid, and he'd really struggle to to do anything.
1: I think he would have got an Oscar for it,
0: though. Yes, yes, because going through immense suffering. Uh, is what brings awards. Here comes a segue into the BAFTAs, <laughs> which was tonight, and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio has uh, scored himself one of them little golden mask things for the Misery Athon, uh, the Revenant.
1: Yeah, not really much of a surprise there. That the this has been his "There Will Be Blood" year, where basically everyone has just bowed down and said, "Yeah, fine, you can have an Oscar." You know, you ate raw fish and. Pretended to sleep in a horse, you know. I think you deserve it, and mm. you know, fair play to him. He did seem to have a miserable time making it.
0: Mm. Did he have as miserable time making it as we had watching it?
1: I mean, no. I don't understand how anyone could, because um, mm. it's pretty. It's a pretty grueling watch, but you know, and as like I've said before, I think it is cheating a little bit to have to go to suffer for something as opposed to actually, you know, it, it's to quote Laurence Olivier, you know, it's act, act, dear boy. Mm. You know, you know it's, it's, that's a high level of difficulty is when you aren't in freezing cold water and eating <laughs> raw fish.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And The Revenant kind of swept the board at the BAFTAs. Not really, but it won five awards, uh, including Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director. Um, Mad Max uh, Fury Road cleaned up in the Technical Awards, uh, which was nice to see. And uh, Carol, uh, for many people's early kind of awards frontrunner when it came out. Walked away empty-handed, uh, which is uh, you know sad to see because uh, it's much better than the Revenant.
1: Yeah, it's very much the Jeb Bush of award season.
0: Um, they executed hundreds of people.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, well, li- listen, we don't know what Carol did before the <laughs> thing died. That's a good point. We-, we don't know. We don't know how she made her money. Um, mm. But no, she the, the Carol, I think, was seen as she was uh, certainly Kate Blanchett was considered to be a dead cert from a very early stage, and then. About two months ago, it became the accepted wisdom that Brie Larson was going to win Best Actress for *Room*, which she did at the Baftas as well. And I think the the Baftas have kind of continued to do what they've done in recent years, which is that they have kind of fallen into lockstep with the over the overarching storyline of who's who's going to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's probably been confirmed that when it come in two weeks' time. Brie Larson and Leonardo DiCaprio probably win. Maybe Kate Winslet, although, I don't know, she, she seemed to be a non-factor for a really long time. But mm. I, I guess she seems to be a front runner now.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, I was going to say that the BAFTAs, if they do deviate in any way from the Oscars and that kind of Golden Globe procession of who's going to win what, um, it's generally they kind of try to focus more on the British stuff and that's reflected this year, by Mark Rylance and Kate Winslet winning supporting nods and awards. Um, although no British film was nominated for Best Picture, there was kind of like a kind of fairly thin on the ground, generally. But do you think that Rylance, you know, I don't think he's going to win the Oscar, is he?
1: Uh, I think he's, he's up there. I'm not sure who, who would be the favourite other than him. Stallone? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like Stallone might probably pip it just because he has... Uh, yeah, I mean, like, Rylance is obviously an acclaimed stage actor who's done great work on television with things like Wolf Hall, but Stallone is this kind of legendary figure who is, in this instance, playing the same character for 40 years on and off and was nominated for Best Actor in 40 years ago and is now being nominated for Best Supporting and has actually shown up and done the work for the first time in quite a long time, and I think that that is kind of too good a story to ignore on the academy spot and also he is probably he's been around long enough that i think he probably has enough connections that people will vote for him just because you know they like him personally from all of his work he's done over the years
0: mm, he could probably still throw a punch as well um yeah whereas rylance is more of a kind of fop um <laughs> plus R- rylance is kind of a new kid on the block isn't he really film wise he's he's young he's got a long career ahead of him yeah i mean um, rylance
1: can kind of have a, a, a baleful stare but Americans don't react quite so much to that as they do to, uh, to a good left hook.
0: Mm, a good knuckle supper. In other news uh, this week, and uh, I must say full disclosure, I'm about to make uh, an embarrassing backtracking climb down. Um, from what I said in the opening episode of the year, the preview episode, I said Deadpool not only had the potential to, but I figured it definitely would flop. Um, because A, it stars box office poison Ryan Reynolds, B, it's R-rated, and C, no one really gives a fuck about it, and how right I proved to be that it's now shaping up to be one of the most successful R-rated films of all time with a quite preposterous opening weekend box office return.
1: Yes, that's right. It is currently estimated at the time that we record this to have earned $135 million in its first, Jesus. In its first three days, and because tomorrow... Is President's Day, and that is a whole day. It could add as much as another 20 million on there, so it will have earned about 150 million over the course of four days.
0: Wow. And it beats. Do you know which film it beats into number two as the uh, biggest R rated opening weekend of all time?
1: I believe it's The Matrix Reloaded.
0: Mm, Not really. Hangover 2. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um.
1: It's not exactly an August company, is it?
0: No, it's not. I mean the reviews have been kind of what everyone expected. Uh if you kind of uh, like that kind of thing, you're going to be very much kind of entertained by it, but if you kind of have got not much aptitude for smugness or <laughs> kind of fourth wall breaking buffoonery, then you're probably going to find it quite a tiresome affair. But even the most optimistic people at Fox did not see that coming.
1: Yeah, I mean going into the weekend i think the upper echelon was people would say oh it'll do like 60 or 70 million it's not going to trouble 50 shades of gray for the top february opening it's not going to trouble the kind of the top r rated opening weekends or anything like that or or even you know they didn't think it would top 300 for the highest opening weekend for a comic r rated comic book adaptation and it you know it basically beat every single record it came up against in kind of the foul-mouthed, fourth-wall-breaking version of uh, what the Force Awakens did a few months ago. Uh, and mm. it's it's quite incredible. And, and the thing about it that's even more incredible is that it cost only, in inverted commas, uh, $58 million, which is very, very cheap for a superhero film. Uh, and that means, cause I, was, I was curious, because Fox are also behind the Fantastic Four and the X-Men films, and I was curious as to whether or not the Deadpool would have a chance of being their most profitable ever and it probably will because most of the X-Men and Fast Fantastic Four films only just kind of broke even whereas this mm. one will most likely make somewhere in the realm, realm of like 250 million dollars in pure profit from America alone
0: mm. and I suppose it's a, a kind of a big win for what could be seen as gimmicky marketing which kind of I didn't think again how right I proved to be in this this <laughs> uh, this uh, this occasion that kind of proved that you could market a film effectively with a billboard with emojis on it, uh, a fake Valentine's poster, and something which doesn't and generally a kind of feel which doesn't help non Deadpool aficionados understand what the hell the film's about.
1: No, but I think what it did kind of do was I think it said this is going to be a superhero film that doesn't take itself seriously it's just going to be kind of a laugh mm. and i feel like obviously you know the the, the man of steels of it of the world and the impending kind of onslaught of batman versus superman i think that that whole strain of super serious and uh, portentous superhero stuff is probably grinding people down a little bit and the marvel films are getting a little bit overstuffed and Civil War, although it looks like it could be a lot of fun, also looks like it's going to be quite serious. I think the idea of a film similar to Gaijin's of the Galaxy a few years ago, the idea of a film coming out and saying, hey, we're just going to have a bit of fun Mm. it probably is is quite appealing. And also it it has been quite a while. It also helps to be the first superhero film out of the gate for the year. Mm -hmm. I think if it came later in the year, it may not have done as well if people were getting a bit kind of burnt out on the slew of superhero films that are going to come out. But I think being the first out there and being one that was kind of unabashedly saying, you know, you don't need to take this too seriously, probably helped it appeal to, to so many people.
0: Mm, mm. Well, it'll be uh, difficult to stop if it gets going, because word of mouth has is, is kind of been favourable, where uh, the reviews haven't been, but people who liked it, you know, really liked it and told people, and, you know, it's going to probably grow from here, rather than tail off quickly. One last bit of housekeeping we've got before we move into the meat of this week's episode is we've had a really big response from the piracy episode we did three weeks ago. Um, we've had a lot of listeners getting in touch uh, via Facebook and Twitter and, and uh, email and, and kind of whatnot. And it's been kind of so interesting the, the wealth of uh, feedback and the the kind of the range of opinions on the subject which to be honest I didn't see coming that we thought we would revisit it next week or the week after but what we really want is more opinions on piracy and I didn't really expect so many people to kind of argue it as a gray area
1: yeah i think that for a lot of people i think our our, our stance or at least my stance of basically saying it's it's wrong <laughs> um, and as someone who it uh, doesn't do it. Uh, I think is is kind of increasingly in the minority. So I think mm. that that means that there are lots of people who have an opposing view, and and you know I'm glad that people have got in contact to offer that, and uh, I would really like to hear more, if only because it gives us an excuse to record an episode in which we we try and, we try and rebut them.
0: Mm. Yeah, I just I I think we've we've both found it very very strange that we've got so many passionate responses from kind of like-minded individuals. It's quite an odd thing, but it, it I think it proves that there's probably a bit more to this issue than meets the eye. And it probably has wider consequences outside of whether you think it's right or wrong. So, yeah, please do get in touch please, like via the Twitter, the Facebook, or leave a comment on the website. And uh, we'll be sure to include it. If you want to be anonymous, then by all means, do that. But yeah, cool. Uh what are we talking about this weekend?
1: Uh, we are talking about the NBC drama Friday Night Lights.
0: And why are we talking about that?
1: Because on February the ninth, which was a few days ago at this point, it was the five year anniversary of the finale of the show airing on Direct TV, the service that helped produce the show after it almost died on broadcast and because it's been five years and it's a show that uh, i love and that you have have very recently watched all of i thought it would be fun to kind of look back on it because i I do feel as if it is a show that at the time was great but whose reputation and greatness has kind of come into even sharper relief over the last couple of years as, as more people have discovered it through netflix
0: It's also been 10 years since it actually started in a nice piece of kind of symmetry, but it also comes at a time where loads of people I know are just starting to get into it, which I think is due to the fact that it has kind of relatively recently landed on Netflix in the UK and kind of people are are kind of turning to it. We probably should have done this episode to coincide with the Super Bowl last week, (laughs) Um, but how were we to know that it was the anniversary two weeks ago? We are in no way kind of clued up enough to realize that.
1: And also, two weeks ago, you were dying.
0: That is a great point. (laughs) I have recently overcome my dance with death and um, back in rude health, everyone. So, yeah, thanks for the letters of support and kind words. To kick things off, uh, I want to talk about the kind of genesis of Friday Night Lights and how it raises a very interesting point about adaptation. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Friday Night Lights started off as uh, a real thing that happened and then someone <laughs> wrote a book about it and then uh, that person's second cousin made a film about it and then that person decided that there probably wasn't enough time in 90 minutes to cover all the issues from the book so he then adapted it into a TV series. And then that TV series was going to be adapted into a film and then that fell through and now it's being adapted into a musical. Discuss.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, like you say, it was uh, based on the book of the same name by H.G. Buzz Bissinger, uh, who has the most kind of screwball comedy newsroom name (laughs) imaginable. Uh, He's
0: like he's wandered out of a Preston Sturgis film.
1: (laughs) Exactly, yeah. He wrote the book uh, based on the, I believe, the 1988 uh, season of A Real Team. Uh, and then, you know, that was a book. The book was became a, a big success and people wanted to adapt it, but no one could kind of hammer, uh, could get the rights to it. Uh, and, and you and I both read in preparation for this, a great oral history of the show on Grantland, in which someone from NBC admits that they basically created a knockoff of the book in 1993, uh, which starred Ben Affleck. and only he lasted mm. one season. <laughs> 14 years later, or Peter Berg, the director who at that point I think had only directed, what, Very Bad Things and The Rundown? Uh,
0: Yeah, did he do that? Uh, Was it not The Green Zone, the one that was set in kind of like the Middle East with Jason Bateman?
1: Yeah, uh, that one he would have done a few years later and I can't remember what it was called. It's that that memorable. Yeah, one of the many unmemorable Iraq War films. Mm. Uh, Yeah, so he was the second cousin of of Buzz Biddinger and he really wanted to make it and he used his family connections to get the rights and he turned it into a film with Billy Bob Thornton. The film was a kind of a moderate commercial success but got very good critical reviews. I remember first reading about it in Empire where it got a five-star review, which I was very surprised about because it was a film I had not heard a single thing about and I was like, well, how good can a film about an American football team be? Um, Mm. Because as we were saying last week, there's not a huge amount of really good films about it as a sport and you know I I, based on that I went and bought it on DVD and it's like oh this is really really great and then a couple of years later in 2006 it debuted as a TV series on NBC Uh, and I think uh, everyone was surprised how in each each iteration of it has essentially been kind of brilliant and managed to retain kind of what was great about its previous incarnation even though each different version of it is kind of radically different to the thing that preceded it.
0: Mm, Yeah. Um, It's that classic thing of building upon a world, isn't it? Even though the the world in the book, the world in the film, and the world in the TV show are all uh, different in the sense that they have different names. Uh, They don't kind of share characters, but they share types and they share kind of atmosphere and they share a tone more importantly.
1: Yeah. And, and I think, it, the the most interesting one in some ways is the transition from book to film because the book is obviously it's about this specific season about this team in this specific town but then a lot of the book is also about the background of what why football means a lot to these kind of small former oil towns that that uh, have been devastated by collapses in the oil industry in Texas and how you had gone from these kind of boom towns where that you know there's there's long pages in it where Bissinger talks about Uh, oil, people who got rich from oil flying in palm trees to have on their estates and things like that and then just going completely bust and how this kind of resonated throughout these towns where basically the uh, Friday night football games at the local high school was the thing that allowed that gave all these people kind of hope and something to kind of really root for and the, the, the fact that the football culture in Texas was kind of so intense and people got really, really passionate about it and it's interesting how stuff about that kind of is on the edges in the film version version, but the film version is mainly about the characters and the games itself. But Mm. then when it went from film to TV, like all of that material that had to be left on the sidelines, because it can only really be kind of, uh, it can only be a setting and background in a film. Suddenly you can actually dig into that stuff when you have, twenty two or thirteen episodes a year to produce.
0: Mm. It was it always struck kind of struck me as fairly odd as a as a kind of a British person to think about towns they essentially exist around football team and not a, you know, NFL team, a high school team. A team that fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year old kids play in, but would draw crowds of twenty five, thirty thousand people. And I always remember watching Days to Confused and being really baffled by the fact that so many people could count on these things but this is not an uncommon thing in kind of small town america that this to be the case and and Friday night lights uh to an english viewer at least doesn't make that whole thing seem odd or bizarre it makes it feel like it's everything
1: yeah i think the thing that's really really great about the show is that it is you know football it provides kind of the setting and the impetus for why all these characters are thrown together but it is also primarily a show about growing up and about living in a small town and so it has the kind of the intensity of really good coming of age stories because you are focusing on all of these young people who are you know they are in the final years of their childhood essentially they're all looking at what they're going to Do when they leave school, you know, are they going to be stuck in these towns, or they going to go into the word world and actually do something? And I think that that the tension between what's keeping them in the town and what is is familiar and what they have grown, their lives have been built around, which is often you know football and religion and things like that, and their desire to you know go and uh, study to be an artist in Chicago. You know, Mm. the, the the tension between those two things is one of the things that adds. Such a kind of a a kind of a poignancy to the whole thing.
0: Mm. One of the things that really made the show stand out from other shows is the style of it. I mean, it's fairly obvious from its nature that it's it's kind of improvisational. But kind of doing a bit of further digging, realized just how kind of radical the style of of the show was. It was filmed, you know, with three cameras and just kind of like non intrusive camera work. With the kind of the camera operators being kind of hidden away, and uh, the actors often wouldn't think they were on camera, they wouldn't kind of be having their heads that they were being shot for a close up or or what they would just be acting, and they would be in charge of their own blocking. They're you know, if they didn't particularly like anything in the script, they could change it and as long as it stayed true to the character, which is kind of the most important thing. And it's awesome to think about, you know, John Cassavetes shooting something like this in so this way, but to think of a network. Show that's you know a sprawling kind of setting and and a huge cast. Um, that's pretty fucking bold.
1: Yeah, it is. It's kind of like if you if someone had given Robert Altman a uh, an opportunity to make a network drama, but maybe with a slightly a slightly tighter focus on plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it does have that feel to it where people are kind of acting with their full bodies all the time. Because, like you say, they don't know if they're just in for a, in for a close up. They have to constantly be embodying the character in its, in their entirety because they don't know what angle they're being shot from. and I think that is one of the things that adds that sense of intensity to it is is you do feel as if everyone is really kind of embodying their character every single moment
0: mm. and you yeah. see a lot of improvisational stuff in comedy. Stuff like Kirby Enthusiasm, but it's not something that is particularly kind of prevalent in drama.
1: Yeah, I think that's because drama tends to be a little more plot heavy. Mm. And I feel you, you have to keep moving things along, and that's kind of the thing I think with comedy, uh, people who use it uh, will probably, and certainly in film, what they will do is they'll just use it and have it go along, and then they sometimes, particularly in the Kind of Apatow school. They don't really seem to care if what's being said actually corresponds to the characters or the plot. Whereas Link in the drama, you're a little more restricted by it. They say, okay, you can change a line here or there, and you have free reign about how your character is is going to be. But also, you know, this scene has a very specific purpose within this, you know, overarching story that we've come up with. And I also think that's kind of why Curb is it's maybe the best version, of, but the best comedy version of that because they're restricted to half an hour and each scene does have a specific point in larry david's kind of long five or six page outlines
0: mm, mm, yeah, yeah um it's not generally just like you see in the worst kind of eddie murphy film from the 80s just turn the camera on and just say something until something's vaguely funny it doesn't matter what it is and just stick it in
1: yeah just give us something so that we can cut on and go on to the next scene
0: yeah, it was interesting, like, I mean, Ed will post the, the link to the Grantland oral history in the, in the show notes to this, but what was interesting in that is Peter Berg, who, when I first saw Peter Berg, I, he was the kind of the dumb schmuck from The Last Seduction, the, the John Dahl film, which is an amazing film. Um, He was an actor in that, and I kind of didn't go on to think that he would be um, a kind of a pretty kind of experimental director, who also did Battleship, um. <laughs> But that was kind of weird. The, the The cool thing was that he said that, like, he, he never wanted to hear any of his directors say cut ever because what's the worst thing for an actor to be told to stop acting or that something was wrong? They just said they just talked about the scene, they set the cameras up, they rolled, they started going, if something did go wrong, they just say go back to whatever and do it. They would keep the cameras rolling, keep it loose and keep it flexible. It's not really something I saw uh, the director of Hancock doing.
1: No, I think it's it's very interesting seeing, I think, the freedom that he got moving into television. I think that that is something that we talk about a lot on the show in terms of why television over the last decade or so has been kind of so vibrant. I think that him coming in as someone who had a something of a track record as a commercial filmmaker who had essentially demonstrated that this story could be told already because he'd already made the film version meant that he had a lot of freedom to come in there and to try and do things that maybe a kind of an, an old hand at television wouldn't have thought possible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like he was the one who insisted, yeah, we're going to shoot in real locations. We're not going to build sets. We're going to rent a house. Uh, the actors are going to be able to tell directors, you know, no, I don't want to say that line and and to come up with their own things and to act as I think uh, Connie Britton says in that piece as the co-creators of the characters He was the one who kind of came in and said all of those things and and essentially threw out the conventional wisdom of how you make a show for a big television network, which, you know, theoretically will be seen by kind of tens of millions of people.
0: Mm. Yeah, only theoretically in Friday Night Lights case.
1: Yeah, because it was a show that aired opposite, like, huge reality shows and would never, never manage to find its audience and which was... Uh, marketed as a football show as opposed to a show about a community and as about a group of people kind of struggling with the difficulties of of their lives in, and you know it, it, its marketing basically failed to say why it was such a great and special show and so it never found its footing for its first season and then its second season came back and it did just as badly and then they got hit by the writers strike and they couldn't even complete their second season
0: Mm. Well, I have to say that when I first heard of the show, because I heard of the show, I saw the film first, um, and I heard of the show before I'd seen the film. So I saw the the film quite late. Um, but when I saw the show advertised, I just felt like it was the TV version of Bar City Blues, mm. which is kind of, if you watch some of those trails for it now, it's kind of what it feels like. You're trying to play it up as a kind of a, a teen drama Something in the kind of the tone of like the O C or One Tree Hill, but set around football with kind of pretty people in it and nothing else. Well they didn't they completely undersold the appeal of the show, which is a kind of like an immaculately acted, very quiet drama about a community and about kind of optimism and, you know, kind of humanity on a on a small scale, but then also on a big scale. But at its heart, what I kind of people forget that the film the TV show, sorry, is about what essentially is the greatest marriage ever committed to uh, celluloid or video.
1: Yeah, again, to cite the oral history, I think it is, again, Connie Britton who says that people will remember it as a show about a marriage and not a show about a about football, and that is true. I think the marriage between Coach Taylor, played by Coach Eric Taylor, he does have a real name, not that it's used very often, <laughs> Uh, played by kyle chandler and uh, tammy taylor played by connie Britton, is one of the kind of the funniest richest warmest and most human marriages i think i have ever seen certainly on television but also i think in pretty much any medium obviously it helps that they they got to do it so often you know Mm -hmm. they kept having to do an episode every week and you know they they built that relationship over a lot of time but i think even from the pilot, you do get a real sense of their history and of what their relationship actually is in kind of a really palpable way. And then really the entire series after that is just about filling in the blanks and the details and just enriching what feels like a, like a real kind of partnership between two incredibly passionate people who know what they want, are not always on the same page, but do love and support each other uh, through everything.
0: Mm. I kind of watched this show... Uh, as we, we have discussed this show before because I've got into it relatively recently but I watched all five seasons in a preposterously short period of time uh, about kind of three and a half weeks I think I watched it in. Um, and my wife would always be kind of lurking around in the background as she does doing a, a kind of uh, homework uh, as it were She teacher not a student let's uh <laughs> let's nip that in the bud right now um but she would always comment whenever there were kind of coach taylor and uh, mrs coach scenes that you know that's a marriage you want to aspire towards, and mm. it kind of really is kind of the most realistic marriage I've ever seen, um, where kind of it's about kind of uh, love and support, but also kind of compromise and and kind of uh, doing the right thing for each other, which ultimately is kind of what happens in the film, in the show. I, well, this is <laughs> the, the problem with TV being so good these days, Ed. I just the lines are blurred. Yeah, soon we'll
1: just be start saying in the play
0: or co- content. It's just content. <laughs>
1: hashtag content mm-hmm. um yeah i mean the thing that i think is also really great about it is that the show would tackle subjects and stories that i think are fairly well trodden for any drama show or any show about people who are married or any sports kind of story like there'd be stories about uh, about people ab- abusing uh hormones there'd be kind of things particularly any story that deals with kind of black players and white players or hispanic players they would be have people who are um they, they would have stories about kind of racial tension in in a community and things like that but the show would always take the choice that would be surprising because it wouldn't be cliche but it would still fit in what was happening in the it with the characters the, the example that to mind for me is that And we're not going to kind of spoil any kind of big things about the show for people who've never seen it and who maybe are interested in checking it out. But there is one kind of slight subplot in, I think, the third season or something where a colleague of Tammy's has a bit of a crush on her and drunkenly kisses her. Mm. And you think, oh, this is going to be kind of like she's going to be like really embarrassed and she's not going to tell her husband about it. And then he's going to find out about it and he's going to get jealous. And instead, what she does is she laughs. And then as soon as she sees him, she tells him that this guy tried to kiss her. And his response is not to kind of really freak out about it. It's just to kind of be like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> and just like treats it as a thing where he, he doesn't get irrationally jealous because he knows that his wife, you know, loves him and he trusts his wife. And also he knows that the guy who did it is kind of a dork. <laughs> Probably doesn't have much of a chance with her. But, you know, it is it is like a, that is a, a kind of a real human reaction as opposed to the reaction you would see. In kind of more stereotypical show, where they would try and eke kind of loads of unnecessary drama out it, because no one in the in the show would be telling each of the important things that they need to know.
0: Mm. They would play it for plot rather than character.
1: Yeah, and Mm. there the, the the show, I think that is that is the key thing to the show. Is it always pointed to character over plot to the extent that there are a lot of episodes in it that you know we've talked about this before, where there probably wouldn't be a football game, or you'd find it very hard to say. Unless it was like a major event where you could say, "Oh yeah, that is, yeah, you know, that is the episode where such and such a character got arrested or whatever," you could point to things like that. But for the most part, the, the episodes would consist of just a couple of scenes of characters kind of hanging out and kind of relating to each other, or kind of have it, you know, kind of playing around or being at odds with each other. And it would be just a collection of scenes of characters being together, as opposed to you being able to say, "Oh yeah, this is." Advancing this particular plot line.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Um, Speaking of advancing plot lines, Fire Night Lights, even though it had a troubled history, I guess, uh, and it always lived kind of precariously on the verge of cancellation at all times, had a bit of a a kind of a life, didn't it, when uh, the writer's strike interrupted the second season and they just straight up didn't finish it. And they had an opportunity to, I think we've talked about this before, hit the, the hard reset button and throw away a lot of kind of elements that perhaps they were being kind of forced to pursue by the network, most notably a quite kind of out of place murder mystery kind of subplot.
1: Yeah, which is probably the kind of the biggest mistake the show ever made, uh, even though it led to inadvertently led to a relationship that I really liked, mm-hmm. where two characters are thrown together and you really kind of thought, oh, yeah, I, c- I can see why these two would get together under these extreme circumstances it did just feel wildly out of place with the tone the show had done before. And there were also, there were just a lot of plot lines happening at the same time, which seemed to be thrown in there just because they needed to have something they could put in promos that made it seem really shocking and full of drama. Mm. Where it's just kind of like, oh my God, this man is torn between two women and things like that, you know, it just, it always, it kind of felt a little bit strange. And even though I think the show's still... Try stayed mostly true to itself and still managed to pull some good episodes and some good drama out of it it always felt like it was flailing a little bit and ironically because uh, as like we we're saying direct tv came in uh and and produced the third fourth and fifth seasons because they came in uh, the writer strike and the kind of almost cancellation ended up being the best thing for the show creatively and and for its legacy because if they hadn't come in or or if the writer's strike hadn't happened and they just finished off their, their kind of lesser second season and got cancelled, then it'd be remembered as a show that started well and then just kind of fizzled out, but instead it was able to come back with kind of three progressively more amazing seasons of television and kind of established its place in the pantheon.
0: Mm. I was just trying to think of how the network would kind of promote it without the kind of more kind of sensational elements of murders and stuff. It'd be like, uh, watch this really kind of aggressive meeting with the boosters. Um, (laughs) Coach Taylor represses his feelings again. Or, cool, yeah, I don't know. Watch Joe
1: McCoy slowly manoeuvre to get (laughs) Coach shoved out. Yeah. But very slowly, to the extent that you're not sure if he's actually doing anything or if he just is kind of a dick.
0: Mm. Matt Saracen has... Like abandonment issues, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's yeah, it, it's just it's it's very much like those shows like The Wire that that, that can't really be sold in a quick thirty second bumper that's going to give you razzle dazzle people bursting through the go- doors with guns and kind of whatnot. I mean, there is a lot of exciting football action, but you know, I said before when we first mentioned the show, and we said again, it's not really about football.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it. Like I've always said it's like a Larry McMurtry novel but as a TV show and about football, but not in that like something like the last picture show, it is a show about, you know, just kind of life in a, in a Texas town, which happens to revolve around a certain thing, but much as the last picture show is not really about the closing of a cinema. It's about what that represents Mm. Uh, in the Friday night lights. It's not about football. It's what football means to that community and what the ritual of People going to watch football on a Friday night uh, means, and what how it kind of represents the the kind of the rhythms of a town as people age and move away, or they stay, and uh, as people kind of fall in love, fall out of love, mature, you know, all this sort of stuff is all, all plays off against this backdrop, and it all at one point to another comes back to uh, the football field. But it is like like the office in the office, you know, mm. it's it's the thing where. Stuff happens. It's not the, the 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 most important thing itself. Like The Office is not about the internal machinations of Wernham and Hogg. Mm. You know, it, it's about you know the, the the lives of the people who happen to work there.
0: You you'll be telling me Moby Dick isn't about whaling next.
1: Well, I've got this twelve thousand page essay to <laughs> to send to you.
0: <laughs> One of the things that always surprises me is that the, the the huge part of the show's appeal is is the kind of an endless parade of hugely talented young actors who are in it. I mean, outside of the uh, the more experienced cast like Connie Britton and Carl Chandler, we have you know a great ensemble. But what stunned me to find out was just how inexperienced pretty much all of them were. I mean, reading again, remember it's the Grantland article, like people working kind of shitty jobs just to go into auditions. This was a lot of actors' first jobs. A lot of the actors. Uh, weren't natural athletes at all uh, which was quite surprising to learn but yeah I mean that that really does um, kind of help the show that you haven't seen these guys anywhere before and you're not attached to them for any roles they've played in the past.
1: Yeah and I think that also may to an extent have been what has hurt some of their careers in subsequent years is that they were kind of raw talents and that rawness was perfect for kind of a somewhat experimental way of producing the show. Mm Mm-hmm. You know someone like Taylor Kitsch who is, you know, starts off as that show as kind of just a pretty boy, but by the end of it is this kind of really soulful figure and kind of one of the great, um, one of the, the really great characters on it. Someone like him, he really suits that that um, improvisational method and that that idea of kind of almost like total acting of constantly having to be on. But when you place him in a traditional setting in a battleship or a John Carter. Uh, he seems kind of lost, mm-hmm. and I feel like you can you can see that with some of the other actors who have gone on to do kind of network shows or to try to break into movies. When you essentially just say to them, "Oh no, you just you just say the lines," and you this is your blocking, and we'll just do a close-up here, so you don't really have to do much with your hands or whatever, then they seem that a lot of what seemed to make them special on the show seems to get lost.
0: Mm. Are you saying that what made them special on the show was hand acting?
1: Yeah, mainly. I think, you know, if Italians have taught me anything, <laughs> it's that it's really important to move your hands.
0: Mm, gesticulate wildly. But yeah, um, it's yeah, it's odd that kind of a lot of the people haven't gone on to surpass the success of the show critically. A lot of the kind of actors have just kind of hung around in smaller things. And, you know, the big people have been probably the most successful one has been Michael B. Jordan, I guess.
1: Yeah, Michael B. Jordan, certainly in the last year, uh, maybe Jesse Plemons. Yeah.
0: He is someone who has really
1: found his niche as a character actor who occasionally gets kind of bigger roles, like his his role on Fargo this year, where he was. In, you know, it's hard to say that there's a lead on that show, but he was a pretty major part of it, mm. uh, which is is interesting as well because then again, he he wasn't. You know, he had storylines on the show, but he wasn't really one of the big ones a lot of the time. But he is the one who, through his film work and also through his his role on Breaking Bad where i think his kind of baby-faced naivete really suited that character as kind of a vicious killer mm. uh it really he he is someone who has been able to kind of break out from the type he played on that show in interesting ways uh and you just i kind of, I just find it's very interesting that the, the guy who was like never even like fifth lead on the show is probably the one who has had the most kind of notable and impressive career so far
0: mm Speaking of actors from the show who have uh, perhaps not surpassed their um, early potential, um, Scott Porter, who plays uh, Jason Street on the show, uh, is returning to the show in the aforementioned Friday Night Lights musical, which is coming to Broadway this year. Uh, yes, you heard right. Um, he's playing the role of Coach Taylor in the production by the same people who brought you the Cruel Intentions musical, so I'm not really sure, I can't really vouch for the quality of this
1: No, I I can't either, but I do like, in the same way that I like Michael Caine coming back to play the Olivier role in Sleuth mm-hmm. even though the remake of Sleuth is terrible mm-hmm. I do like the idea of an actor turn, returning to a work and playing the older character, in the same way that you know uh, Shakespeare has a role for every age of an actor uh, Friday Night Lights has that. I think if he puts on enough weight, eventually he can come back for the remake as Buddy Garrity.
0: <laughs> yeah, he really wants that jumbotron. Um, <laughs> yeah, wants it desperately. Yeah, I have to say I was a little shocked by the uh, the news of the musical, but yeah, we'll we'll kind of see if that pans out. Apparently, it's going to happen. I don't I, know. I hope, to... I hope that
1: it's. I hope it's like the Rocky musical, and it's something that's apparently really, really great, mm. but also dies a death. Yeah, because I because I I like I. I don't like it in the sense that you know a lot of people lose money and lose their jobs, but I do kind of like the thing with live theatre is that a thing can be really great, but then if it doesn't catch on, it ceases to exist and it becomes this thing that people remember in there, you know, or they may have like the cast recording and that's pretty much it. Uh, there's something about the finite nature of of theatre that I find quite uh, compelling.
0: Mm. Where do you think to wrap up now? Where do you think? Friday Night Lights stands in the uh, the pantheon of shows we're talking about, you know, the golden age of television. Yawn, we keep saying it. Where do you think it ranks up there? It was interesting that in the Alan Seppenwolf book, The Revolution was televised. It's one of his shows that he picks uh, to talk about. Do you think it's really that like important and will be looked back on? Or do you think it will just be another in the, a long list of great shows that came out?
1: I think it it will be... I think it belongs in that, that, that echelon alongside things like The Wire and The Sopranos and Deadwood and, and things like that and, and Breaking Bad because it's not only was it a really great show, it was also arguably the last really great network drama before, and it was the, the before kind of that started to seed ground to cable, which essentially now is, is where all the good drama comes from. Uh, it was the last one to really kind of excel at the, the form of making a big accessible dramatic show that is uh, basic, pretty much for everyone you know anyone who actually watched the show you know it anyone can kind of dip into it it's a thing that is very kind of broad and appealing and was was really fantastic and i do think that aside from its place as kind of a mass appeal accessible show uh it was just it's, it's 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 unique in that it was this show that was so character driven was so big on Kind of atmosphere, and um, you know, I think uh, in the, the the oral history again, Jason Katims, the showrunner, said that people would compare it to like a prose poem or an opera or something like that. And it does have that feel. It doesn't feel like a traditional television show. It feels like something kind of deeper and richer and stranger. And I think that that is is the thing that will allow it to survive. Is not only was it a great network television show, it was also unlike pretty much any. Network television shows that came before or since.
0: Hmm. Here, here. Let's do some recommends uh, this week. What have you got, Ed?
1: Uh, I'm going to recommend something that I mentioned earlier, which is The Last Picture Show, the um, Peter Bogdanovich movie, uh, which I think is in many ways the natural uh, kind of predecessor in some ways to Friday Night Lights in, in terms of its tone, in terms of the idea that it is a film about a community centered around a particular event or a particular setting, but I think that it has a similar kind of richness to it, a a similar kind of melancholy tone and the sense of uh, being a story that captures uh, these characters at a particular time in their lives and in their youth. And I think it is just a kind of a really beautiful uh, and lovely uh, film. And uh, I think that if anyone hasn't seen it uh, you're really missing out because it is one of the great works of Sinner but also it is kind of a wonderful tonal and thematic uh, counterpoint to uh, Friday Night Lights.
0: Yeah I'm going to use uh, some American football parlance and call an an audible on my selection because I was going to pick HUD. I didn't want two Larry McMurtry recommendations for the price of one so I'm going to go with the tonal opposite of uh, Friday Night Lights and go for the film I mentioned earlier, Days to Confused, which is a very similar milieu in a very similar setting, but a completely different approach uh, Mm -hmm. to tackling that subject. Once again, you know, about a a big ensemble cast of uh, bright young things who uh, live in a town that is kind of built around its football team. And the pressures that go along with that are relieved not by kind of like deep-seated kind of reflection or personal growth but by smoking a fuck ton of weed (laughs) and listening to Aerosmith so uh, if you want the kind of the super super fun version of Friday Night Lights Days Confused is where you're looking thanks everyone for listening this week Uh, it's been a fun one nice to always look back on a show that we've enjoyed uh, Ed from its beginning and me in the last five weeks um, when I've just kind of crammed it all in but yeah, if you've enjoyed the show um, then please do subscribe on iTunes uh, Stitcher and uh, Player FM, Um, please find us on Facebook, on Twitter and in all the usual places we'll be back next week with uh, probably the Piracy Redux or something else if we uh, find something more interesting to talk about but until then, it's clear eyes, full hearts can't lose, indeed Ed music